You look no. just wonderful. Pomegranates. 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 Uh, pomegranates. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Hell. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, my co-host, Nat McGee. Hello, Ben. How you doing? <laughs> Great. Oh, so good. Where did you come from? The 1920s? The 30s, see? We're fighting crime. Uh, <laughs> hi, everyone. We're watching Dick Tracy today, and I am doing a little Dick Tracy character, I guess. I guess I'm like <laughs> one of his cronies at the police station. I don't know. You're uh, Pat, Pat Pattinson? Pat Patterson? Back to the Movies is a podcast. <laughs> That you're listening to right now, where Ben and I go back to a certain year of cinema, in this case 1990, and we kind of revisit a whole spectrum of movies from that year. And today we're talking about Dick Tracy. See? Dick Tracy! <laughs> yes, we are talking about Warren Beatty's infamous adaptation of the classic comic strip, Dick Tracy. Hell yeah. Now, you were telling me, and I... I guess I, I didn't realize this just before we started recording that you watched this movie a lot when you were a kid. Yeah, I had the VHS. This was in the collection, the Naturian collection. <laughs> Howard the Duck. Howard Dick the Tracy. Duck, Dick Tracy, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Warriors, uh, <laughs> just tons of good movies. But yeah, so I, I definitely watched, I watched this a lot growing up. Definitely was in the rotation for like a year or two as a 10-year-old because- like my kitty Western obsession, I also had a kitty gangster obsession. And this is the perfect movie for that. This is a PG-rated gangster movie. How is this movie rated PG? Well, there's no blood anywhere. They never show blood, and they never curse. And they don't show any boobs. So that's PG. They get about as close as you possibly can. I think that it's a good intro film if you're going to get into gangster movies. This is a great one to start with. This and Bugsy Malone are the two. That you're allowed uh, to watch. Is Bugsy Malone the one with the kids? Yeah, kids is gangsters, which great. is amazing. I think that this and Bugsy would be a great double feature. Do you have any specific memories of like the first time you saw this or a memorable time that you saw this? No, I, it was all VHS. So I think I saw the cover at the video store and I was like, I want to see that. And somehow I got a copy of it. I guess my parents bought it for me. And I would just watch it at home. And I would watch the full movie a lot, at least 15 times. And no, I just, I remember like all the different set pieces and all the scenes and all the crazy characters. I, I wasn't overly familiar with like lines or anything watching it this time. It had all kind of melded together, but I definitely remembered a lot of things about the movie. You couldn't remember all that quotable dialogue, like everything Mumbles says? Yeah, <laughs> I did remember Mumbles. He was... He was amazing. But yeah, and I, I didn't even register when I was a kid that that was Al Pacino. It's kind of funny now looking back because I'm like, oh, wow, I've been watching Al Pacino movies even since I was 10 years old. This is amazing. Like, I didn't even know I was watching an Al Pacino movie. Were you a fan of Dick Tracy, the character? Like, did you ever want to dress up for him as Halloween? Did you want to get like a detective kit or did you like the gangsters? I mean, I just like the whole vibe. The whole thing, the Tommy guns. I definitely did like, you know, at the county fair, they have those things where you can take an old school photograph of yourself as a Western character. Yeah. They had one of those 
at the county fair here in Pennsylvania and you could do it as a gangster. And I was really into taking like that photo and holding a Tommy gun. Like I thought Tommy guns were really cool. And Dick Tracy, I don't, I've never read the comic. I don't know anything about Dick Tracy. I just meant like from this movie, was he like a hero for you or were you just like, oh, whatever. He's the square. No, I no, he's not a now, hero. Were you it's a really bad boy? more about the vibe. It's just like, oh, these cars are cool, these guns are cool, these costumes are cool. Like I didn't care that much about Dick Tracy Got himself. It. He kinda sucks. He does kinda suck. It was much more like, oh, they've constructed this cool world of this candy colored gangster situation. Sure. So that's what I liked about the movie. Rewatching it, did it hold up to your memories? Yeah, I had a good time watching it. I enjoyed reliving it. I I think the movie slaps. It's got a good pace. It has It slaps women. It slaps women. Yeah, it's that's unfortunate, but you know, it's the 30s. It's part of the story. Uh and yeah, overall I I think it held up for me. And I was pleasantly surprised by all the celebrities that I didn't know were celebrities when I was a kid. Sure. And seeing them and being like, oh, wow, there's James Caan. There's- Star-studded cast. Paul yeah. Servino. Paul Servino. Yeah, exactly. So I, it held up for me. Breezy, light, fun, Tommy guns. Can't complain. I unfortunately cannot say that I share any of that experience. i never yep. seen this movie. In fact, I didn't know very much about it until recently. It's one of those movies that has... An infamous reputation, like I alluded to earlier. So certainly at some point in the last five, ten years, it would have crossed my paths. But I had never seen any part of it. No clips, no nothing. I knew that it had crazy gangster makeup. I knew that it had Warren Beatty and Al Pacino. And that was about it. And I sat down to watch it. And I was actually pretty pumped. Because I have a real soft spot for the pulp heroes batman knockoffs that filled the 90s i just watched dark man for the podcast i really enjoyed that as a kid i loved the phantom with billy zane and the shadow with alec baldwin both those movies i was big fans of so i was ready i was like this is just going to join that pantheon for me and i thought this movie was an utter debacle (laughs) i found it deeply unpleasant pretty much the entire way through garish and just a failure in every creative discipline, from the cinematography to the performances to the direction to the writing, even the makeup. Everything that I thought was going to be good, that people had told me were good, or that I thought I would like in spite of their quality, I found very off-putting. Harsh, man. Harsh. It was. I know. I feel bad because I didn't know you had this, like, this was like a childhood favorite of yours. I mean, I, I'm not out here saying it's a great movie, but it, I just it's like burned in my brain. I, I think... For all the reasons you dislike it, I find it kind of charming. I, I like that it's garish and just kind of gross in every way. That sort of made me enjoy it more. Especially now that I know that, like, Warren Beatty was dating Madonna at the time. <laughs> like, it's just so nasty in all regards. But that's sort of the world that this movie takes place in. It's kind sure. of a nasty world. So it works for me. I will say this. I was so fascinated by this two-hour train wreck that I had just watched that I immediately, like, went on the internet and consumed as much Dick Tracy information as I possibly could. (laughs) It was one of those movies that I wanted to know everything about because there was so much pedigree, and I I couldn't really understand how this was the the final product. Yeah. Um, So there is something about it, something compelling. I just found it sort of nauseating. (laughs) (laughs) 
It is a little nauseating. It's like a party. It's like a 30s hidden party. And you're just getting wasted on all the colors and all the Tommy guns. And who knows? You might end up dead at the end of the night, but you you had a good time. That's how I see this movie. <laughs> That's how you see it. Okay. We got to talk about the history of Dick Tracy and how this movie came to be. Because like I said, watching it, I, I just didn't understand. And once I started to read about the history of the character, but more importantly, the history of this production pieces started to fall into place for sort of how this particular brand of catastrophe occurred. It's funny. I didn't really do any of this research. So you're going to be educating both me and the listeners, but I was thinking like, was this just like a passion project for Beatty? Was he like, I feel like Dick Tracy was big when he was a kid in like the the forties. And was, was this like his lifelong dream to like be Dick Tracy? And then that's how he got all these celebs to get onto it. Yes and no. Yeah. He had been trying to make a Dick Tracy movie, according to Wikipedia, since 1975 was the earliest that he tried to option the character. Um, but he sort of fell into both the producing role and the directing role on this film. Okay, He was not the first choice for any of that. Dick Tracy, you're not wrong. He debuts in 1931. And we got to talk about the creator, Chester Gould, uh, because his particular proclivities really shape the character and are present even in the movie 60 years later. Yeah. I read a couple of the comic strips while I was doing my research here after I saw the movie. Did you ever read Tintin when you were yeah, a kid? Yeah, I love Tintin. It's very Tintin. Yeah. It's adventure. It's got that a similar clean line style. It's not quite as um, clean as Hergé. It's a little bit rougher, the, art, the, 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 the style of the drawings. But it's very similar. It has a lot of colorful rogues. Dick Tracy fights a lot of Nazis. Nice. A lot of the characters, like the gangster villains in the movie, are actually Nazis in the comic, which I thought was kind of interesting. But, you know, it's the 30s and then into the 40s. What, they're Nazis, like, in the in America? Yeah, they're, like, Nazi spies and agents and stuff oh, like that. Oh, that's cool. They should have done that in the movie. I actually think they should have. It, it might have been interesting to, to uh, diversify your villains a little bit. But I guess they had to keep it kind of lighthearted disney only make them gangsters. The film is very apolitical in a way that I find kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> but that's perfect for when you're 10 years old because you're just you're just soaking in the um, the aesthetics and not really getting involved in politics. It's like right. it's sort of what all when I was a kid, it, like what kind of turned me off from like Indiana Jones a little bit was like, oh, man, Hitler's here. Like, <laughs> Jesus. Now it's cool. I want to think about Hitler. Yeah. Oh, Hitler. Are you kidding me? I just want mummies. and That's why, like, when I was 10 years old, I was like, I like the mummy over Indiana Jones because it's just more fun. And also it was, you know, more updated visual effects. But anyway, I recognize now Indiana Jones is better than the mummy. And mummy's a great film. Yeah. It but, holds up. Right. Terrible sequels. doesn't have any Nazis. That's why. It doesn't why. have any Nazis. It only has mummies. So yeah. anyway, moving on. Uh, so a couple of things to point out. This was a comic strip, not a comic book. It was printed in newspapers. And that's really important for a couple of reasons. It really affected the aesthetic of the comic. Uh, one, it was produced quickly and cheaply, even more so than a comic book. And two, newspaper printers, when printing in color, would only use uh, limited palettes for the funny pages, red, green, purple, and orange. And so that's why when Beatty wants to try and capture the look of those old comic strips, he goes for this really, really uh, limited color palette. Yeah. 
an all primary. Everyone's only wearing primary colors, which I thought is cool. And that probably wouldn't have been the case if this had been, you know, like Superman or something like that, where they had slightly better printing quality in the comic books and in the newspapers. Right. Gould was really interested in forensic science. So he went out of his way to include like up-to-date information. He would research like the latest techniques and fingerprinting and ballistics and all kinds of different uh, crime-solving techniques. And he would put accurate information in the comics. People credit Dick Tracy with sort of popularizing the police procedural model and shows like CSI and Law and Order and all the procedural cop shows owe a big debt to the model that Dick Tracy set. The comic was hugely influential. But they also had all sorts of other stuff, right? Like There were radio serials, there were film serials, there were comic books, there were novels, there were feature films, there was attempts at TV shows. So he's the original Marvel, basically. Even things like his wrist radio, the Smithsonian credits that with popularizing personal communication devices and basically says that without... Dick Tracy's wrist radio, we wouldn't have cell phones. Wow. There you go. The other thing Ghoul was a big proponent of, and something we have to talk about, is police rights over suspect rights. Oh, he great. advocated very strongly against the introduction of Miranda rights. Okay. And you can even see that in the film when Tracy nabs the uh, uh, big boy's accomplices, and they have all that talk about how the confessions will never stand, and Tracy doesn't care. Yeah, and then he tortures them. Yeah, basically. Yeah, what a guy. So that is one of the things that the movie doesn't tackle in any kind of meaningful way that feels really, really difficult to swallow these days. Of course. I watched some of the the old film serial. It was great. It was really good. Oh, okay. I wish they'd bring that back. I want to see 15 minutes of an adventure with a hero before my movie. And then I have to go back to the next movie to see how it ends. Eh, that's not coming back. They have TV now. You can watch that. But the thing about a film serial is every episode ends with the most ridiculous cliffhanger you've ever seen. I watched right. like four episodes of the Tracy one. Every single one of them ended with him at death's door. Remember Misery? How yes, I know. Got. I was thinking about that. <laughs> and then at the very start of the episode, it would be immediately resolved. And it was, it was great. This yeah. guy named Ralph Bird play Dick Tracy in the serial, and he basically defined the filmic interpretation of the character. And what's really interesting is that he is playing him totally different than Warren Beatty. Yeah. Warren Beatty's, like, kind of soft-spoken and shy and... He's pretty weird in this movie. He's weird. He seems to have some issues. I totally agree. He seems to have borderline personality disorder, <laughs> antisocial behavior, and he just the only thing he can do well is be a cop. Yeah, and they kind of make him thing out of that in the movie. But Ralph Bird was just, he was all-American hero. Square-jawed, quarterback-on-the-football-team kind of guy. Mm. Exactly what you'd expect from the character. I mean, who even is Dick Tracy? He's just a cop that does cool stuff. He doesn't seem to have much of, like, a personality like Bruce Wayne or Clark Kent. I don't know. Mm, yeah. Unless, maybe mm, I maybe don't know. Maybe a potential problem with the character. Yeah. He, he seems to be just a cop, and that's it. Like, he yeah, doesn't have any sort of dual life going on. He's got sweet tech. He goes to space at one point. Oh, nice. Yeah, sequel potential. Hey, speaking of Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent, this is the other thing we got to talk about. So we've got this comic. It is popular for a long, long time. Certainly Beatty would have read it when he was young. And then in 1978, there's a little movie that comes out called Superman. Boom. And it changes the film industry. You're coming off the heels of Jaws and Star Wars. It's another huge blockbuster, and everybody wants their own version of superman yeah 
I talk about this a little bit in the Darkman minisode, but it's so interesting to me the way Hollywood completely failed to understand the appeal of Superman. <laughs> so immediately after Superman, they're like, okay, you know what we need? Other 1930s comic strips. So they make Popeye and Annie. And that's when Dick Tracy starts getting circulated. I just watched Annie for the first time recently. That's a really weird, weird movie. It's a weird movie. And I'm really curious if it's anywhere near the musical because the end of the movie is like a car chase and like people climbing up a bridge. And I'm oh, like, that is... happens in the musical too. Oh, really? Okay. I don't know. But the comic was like an adventure comic. Right. Little Orphan Annie went on adventures. She didn't just live in an orphanage and get adopted by a rich guy. She traveled the world. Yeah. What a weird time for comics. But it's kind of cooler than whatever it turned into. In, like that people were down with like oh little orphan annie i'm into it but then batman comes along then batman comes along 89 uh, i rewatched it after watching dick tracy because one this is like the second movie in a row that feels deeply indebted to batman even if the productions are happening at the same time existing in a post batman world i really wanted to put myself in that mindset because batman is another one of those watershed films yeah that really changes the way hollywood views intellectual property and uh, adapting different source materials. Every movie that we watch in 1990 is living in the shadow of Batman the Christmas before. This seems like such a Batman ripoff. It's insane, but it, I guess it was being made at exactly the same time. So it couldn't have really been a true ripoff. It wrapped production something like three months before Batman premiered. So yeah. So it's not like they saw Batman and they were like, we got to make a movie like this. Maybe they had some inside scoop over how batman was being made i don't know a lot of times there is some weird stuff like that where there's insider baseball there's competition between studios but i think dick tracy really has its origins rooted more in superman and trying to be a response to that and just happens to have followed the changing milieu of hollywood in the same way that batman has i guess it's just like the joker smile with the makeup here and like the general Noir. I know it's like a different well, the, noir the vibe. Heightened, the heightened reality. And also the just Danny like the whole, the whole 30s aspect of it. Like that first sure. Batman movie is so 30s-ish in a way. Even mm-hmm. though it has like Prince music. It just feels like it's in that same time period as this movie. There's a scene where the Joker gathers all the gangsters that feels so much like the scene where Big Boy gathers all the gangsters and Dick Tracy. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's definitely something fishy going on here but it's it's just interesting and then i haven't seen dark man but it's it's just kind of weird that all these movies came out at exactly the same time right and they somehow steer hollywood in the wrong direction again so first it's comic strips and then they're like oh it's pulp heroes let's yeah. make the shadow and it doesn't it takes another decade before blade and x-men and spider-man are like oh no no it's superheroes that's what people want that's what people want they want ubermensch they want figures. spandex. They want people that have control in the world, that, that are gods <laughs> on Earth, even though they look like humans. That cro- easily cross cultural boundaries so you can market it to an international audience. Yep. And yeah, good versus evil. But we should talk a little bit about the development of this movie because it does sort of lend credence to the coincidence argument over ripoff argument vis-a-vis Batman. Because like I said, Beatty starts trying to make a movie in 75. Superman comes out in 78. By 1980, a film is in development. It was picked up by Universal Artists, and they hire Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Donner. Tom Mankiewicz to write, Richard Donner to direct, who wrote and direct Superman. Mm. Did you 
ever take a class with Tom Ekowitz at Chapman? No. Best class I took in film school. He he was teaching there, and this was right before his death, um, R.I.P., but it was just a tour of his favorite movies where we'd go in the big movie theater and he'd put on a different movie and then he'd tell all these personal stories he had of, like, working with the people who made it or Damn. going on crazy road trips with Dennis Hopper. It was oh, awesome. Oh, man, I missed out. He was a really cool guy and a, one of the great Hollywood script doctors. He doesn't have a lot of credits, but he contributed to a huge number of really tremendous films, including Superman. Oh, damn. Okay. But UA can't close the deal. They can't find a script that they like. So the film moves over to Paramount, home of Steven Spielberg in the late 80s. Uh, it's offered to Spielberg. He passes and it goes to John Landis. So it's like basically cycling through every major blockbuster director of the late 80s. Richard Donner, Steven Spielberg, John Landis. John Landis is developing a movie with Clint Eastwood to star as Dick Tracy, which oh, would have been geez. very interesting given like the Dirty Harry comparison. Yeah, really. But then, of course, there's the accident on the set of The Twilight Zone, which leaves Landis blacklisted and unable to get a film made. And then, who takes over but Walter Hill, director of your childhood favorite film, The Warriors. Oh, nice. There you go. He would have been a good fit. He also directed the 48 Hours movie, so we'll be watching one of his movies next week. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he is the person who hires Beatty to star. So this has been like eight years now. We're like, like in the late potato. 80s. And Beatty is finally getting on board with the film. But Hill and Beatty have very different visions for what the movie should be. Hill wants to make a grounded, realistic cop thriller. And Beatty's like, no, it should be like the old comic strip. And so the production falls apart. The rights lapse, and Beatty decides to purchase them himself. Oh, wow. So he was originally just going to be the star after many other people were worked with the project. But he grabs the rights, and now he's producing. And a friend of his, a little guy by the name of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah. Prolific Hollywood mogul producer. He had just moved from Paramount to Disney. And being a ruthless SOB... He tried to nab as much talent as he could on the way over, and so he brings the production to Disney, where it finally gets made. And that just seems like a perfect fit for Warren Beatty, because he wanted it to be this comic book bubblegum situation. It does. It's like this sort of cartoony... It feels very a piece with the Disney aesthetic of the early 90s. Yeah, it's it's a good time. PG. Keep it simple. But the saga is not over, because Beatty doesn't want to direct. Oh, or more accurately, Disney does not want Beatty to direct because even though he has a pretty strong pedigree as a director at this point, he also has a reputation for going massively over budget. It shows. And so they hire Martin Scorsese oh, to wow. direct the film. Oh, my God. But he leaves to do Goodfellas. That's a that's a good idea. It's a good call, right? Yeah, yeah I think so. And that's when Beatty finally takes over directing. They're too late into pre-production. They can't hire somebody else. He's been attached to the project for a while now. He has a vision for it. When does Madonna get involved? That's my question. Well, that's really interesting because she was not the first choice for the role. She had to campaign really, really hard for the part. Was she dating him at the time already? She was. Oh, wow. But even with that, she had to work for scale. She got paid $35,000 for this movie. Madonna, the biggest pop star in the world. Yeah, the biggest star. A pittance. Damn. Beatty got paid $15 million. Wow. Maybe he threw her a couple. <laughs> um, that's crazy, though, that they wouldn't want her. I guess she's not really an actor, so they're like, bad idea. But they, they got she got her way. Yeah, she's not very good in the movie. No, so. she's pretty bad. <laughs> 
Have you ever seen Heaven Can Wait or Reds? I have uh, not, The two no. Beatty films prior to this? No, I haven't. I'm a huge fan of Reds. It's a really interesting movie. It's about um, a, a communist journalist who goes to Russia and witnesses the Russian Revolution. It's, it's really interesting. Oh, cool. What's interesting about those two movies is on both of those films, Beatty gets nominated for actor, screenplay, director, and picture. Because he writes, directs, stars, and produces in them. He's the only person in history that's happened to him. It happened to him twice. And he won Best Director for Reds. So he's got some heat. Yeah. Uh, and then he decides that he can do this movie. And he assembles <laughs> a tremendous cast, the best DP in Hollywood history, an up-and-coming composer, uh, some great, talented makeup effects artists, and he creates Dick Tracy. What a, what a wild ride. Good on him. Good on him for having a creative vision, sticking to his guns for 15 years. Yeah, it really is a testament to his uh, his longevity. Yeah. that Did you see his most recent movie, um, Rules Don't Apply? No, that looked like pretty boring garbage. It was quite boring. But yeah. it's the same story there. That movie was shot like five years before it was released, and he never gave up on it. He's a go-getter. He also refused to back down when he screwed up La La Land winning Best Picture or Moonlight. He came back on stage and was like, just so you know, it's the Academy's fault. <laughs> came back <laughs> Did next you year. watch that live? I did. It was amazing. I was having I was having an Oscar party and some people left. <laughs> they were like, okay, there you go. Got to go. And then I was like, wait, come back upstairs. Come back upstairs. Holy <laughs> shit. Rewound it. It was amazing. See, I, I love the Oscars. I know that they are antiquated and do a bad job reflecting trends in cinema and diversity in voices, but I love them. I love the pageantry and the self-congratulatory nature of them. I find them so interesting. Yeah, and that was an amazing debacle for the ages. I watch them every year, all the way through. Grace never watches the whole thing with me because <laughs> they're so fucking long. She had gone to bed hours before, and I'm just sort of sitting there on my couch, slumped down, half asleep, waiting for the thing to be over, and then that happens, and it was so surreal because... Nobody I know watches the Oscars. <laughs> hey, I watch the Oscars. I have a party every year. It's fun. That was like the last party we had before um, coronavirus. And it's always a good time. It's... Do a little pool. Good yeah. stuff. You should come next time. I, uh, count me in. Fly down. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about the movie? Yes, let's do it. Dick Tracy. Do you want to walk us through the, the plot stuff here? Yeah, yeah. So the movie opens... With basically the St. Valentine's Day massacre, a bunch of guys getting shot up in a garage. So already we're paying some tribute to real life gangsters, 20s. Sure. The whole, I don't, I don't know if our listeners have seen Some Like It Hot, but Some Like It Hot kind of opens the same way. It's very Some Like It Hot with the kid hiding and witnessing it. Right, exactly. So the kid is there and witnesses the whole thing. Charlie Corsmo. Charlie Corsmo. I love Charlie Corsmo. Uh, he's oh. also in Can't Hardly Wait as the yeah, nerd who gets drunk, and he's amazing. And what about Bob? Did you like him in this movie when you were a kid? Did you, like, want to be the kid? No, I, you never want to be the kid. You never want to be the kid. No one wants to be the little annoying kid. I think I don't know why they put kids in movies, honestly. I think it's <laughs> a bad idea, because no one wants to be the kid. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> I mean, he's fine. He's he's the kid. He's, he's like, so annoying. <laughs> I don't think he's that annoying. Charlie Corsmo to me is like the epitome of the precocious child actor who's been rehearsing the lines with their parents in their trailer a <laughs> hundred times before they go on set and do their take. 
Yeah, I mean, he's... I, I can't stand him. I don't hate him that much. I like him in Hook. I like him in What About Bob. I don't know. I feel like he, he does a good job of like kind of leaning into that annoyingness where you don't hate him anymore, but maybe it's just me. I also have a lot of love for him because I also watched Can't Hardly Wait, Hook, and What About Bob a lot. For some reason, I was just really attached to all these Charlie Korsman movies. He retired from acting. Yeah. Are you one of these millennials who, who likes Hook? Are you a Hook apologist? Uh, yeah, I like Hook. Hook's fine. I watched it a lot, and it, I, I like it. Grace loves Hook. It's probably in, like, her top three Steven Spielberg movies. Yeah. And I can't stand it. I think, uh, I think it's it fine. awful. It's not a great movie, but I have a lot of nostalgia for it. I don't. I haven't, like, rewatched it any time recently. I feel like it might not hold up as well on a rewatch, but, dude, Robin Williams, you gotta love it. It's a lot like this. Garish, unpleasant, yeah. way too long. Yeah. But, yeah, Charlie Corsmo became, like, a conservative law professor. So he was just like, I'm not acting anymore. He's, he's like, in politics now. One thing I did see is, I guess he was, he was a pretty bright kid. They show him on set and some behind-the-scenes stuff I watched. And uh, Warren Beatty's, like, quizzing him on, like, yeah. famous quotations. And he notes he said that. I think he went to Harvard... He's, he knows this Clearly shit. a bright kid. Anyway, there's also the makeup of all these crazy gangsters. There's the dude with the little face. I love that little guy. Face. Iconic. The four gangsters playing poker are all classic Dick Tracy villains. Little face, the brow. He's the guy with the big furrowed brow. Oh, yeah. Uh, shoulders, who I didn't even realize had just really big shoulders. He's the one who looks normal. <laughs> That's so funny that they're all these big Dick Tracy villains because they seem like nobodies. They just get shot immediately. Tracy had a really robust rogues gallery. He's sort of like a proto-Batman. But they're respect. all just guys in suits with weird with faces. deformed faces. Do they have any personality? I know that like Batman's villains don't actually have real personalities, really, but like they at least have gimmicks. These guys are all just gangsters. Yeah, like I was saying, like some of them are like Nazi spies. Flat Top is a hitman, not okay. a gangster. You know, okay. they're all they're all a little bit different. Uh, the last guy's Rodent. He's the guy with the sort of mousy features. But yeah, the makeup is wild. John Caglione Jr. and Doug Drexler did the makeup. Okay. They met on Chud a few years earlier, uh, and they did a few films together. I was looking back through their filmography, though. Neither of them had a lot of prosthetic experience prior to this. Chud's like the big one. Okay. Drexler goes on to be a big sci-fi mainstay. He does a ton of work on different Star Trek projects. Oh. Doing prosthetics for them. And Caglioni, interestingly, one of his jobs after this is the Dark Knight. Oh, so he came up with the Joker. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Is that the most iconic makeup of the 2000s? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess the only other thing that this wouldn't... It doesn't really... It's not makeup. I was thinking, like, Gollum, but that's right. all CGI. That's all CGI. So, yeah, probably the most iconic, like straight up makeup of the 2000s for sure. Like once people stop using prosthetics as much, I feel like it's less noticeable. Something like Dick Tracy or Total Recall stand out because of their makeup work, but I can hardly think of any movies that stand out because of their makeup work in recent memory. Are some of the Marvel characters now prosthetics instead of CGI? Maybe. Mostly they're like CGI enhanced. Yeah. So like Vision's, Paul Bettany's like painted purple, but then they like add details and texture right. into his face. I yeah, I can't really think of anything specific. It's all about the CGI craziness, like Davy Jones and Gollum and that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm into it. I'm into the crazy, crazy makeup. It's part of what makes this movie unique. If all these guys were just gangsters in weird outfits, it wouldn't be half as interesting. I don't know if I agree. 
I find the makeup to be distracting. But there's nothing else. There's no other substance to this movie. So like, well, I think the color palette and the composition stuff's pretty interesting, even though I don't think it always works. Yeah. But I also think it's important to have the makeup to show like this isn't an actual gangster movie. This is like a weird sure. comic book movie. It would be more unsettling if these characters didn't look like cartoon characters. <laughs> if there was lit- if the movie just literally opened up with a gangland shooting, even if there's no blood, even if there's no cursing or whatever, I think it wouldn't make it as accessible for kids. And I do think this is a movie for kids. Originally, Warren Beatty was also supposed to have makeup as Dick Tracy to give him Tracy's like square jaw and hooked nose. No, I'm glad they didn't do that. I'm glad they didn't do that. Well, but then you get this kind of troubling subtext where you've got normal looking people and then you have people with like deformities and all the people with deformities are evil and all the normal looking people are good. That's like every movie. Every yeah, it's a problem. Like yeah, I know, but come on. It's fucking Lord of the Rings, fucking Batman. Every movie does this. I don't think it's that troublesome. Like, that's just how it goes. Some of it is pretty impressive. I think Al Pacino's face prosthetics are maybe the best in the movie where they look like you almost can't see the seams. Yeah. The prune face guy is bad. He looks fake. I think William Forsyth flat top is also bad. I like his. I just like the look. It doesn't look amazing. Like, it doesn't look real, but I kind of like the design. So I'm into it. Sure. He was probably one of Dick Tracy's most iconic villains from the comics, based on what I read. Does he look like John C. Riley to you? <laughs> I could see him. I could, I see, could that. see it. Don't, if you squint your eyes, there's John yeah, C. Riley. Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard because the entire time he was on screen, I was just picturing William Forsythe like underneath the makeup. Mm. So to me, he looks a lot like William Forsythe, even though he doesn't. Right. Yeah, what a weird performance to take on. Yeah. He's probably, he's like our first cameo, I would say, because he's a pretty, he's a pretty recognizable character actor, showed up in a bunch of stuff in the 90s. Yeah, he's kind of awesome. He was on Boardwalk Empire. I loved him on that show. His companion, Itchy, played by Edda Ross, much less recognizable, even though he probably has like the least makeup of any of the gangsters. Yeah, he looks normal. He just has an upturned nose. James Caan looks normal, and he's a bad guy. You're right, you're right. Not all of them are freaks. Okay, so (laughs) then... Dick Tracy shows up, finds the walnuts on the ground. Yeah, this is a really important plot point. But wait, that's a different crime scene. There's two crime scenes. There's the first crime scene that he just shows up and immediately chases the kid. With the eat lead Tracy shot into the wall. Yeah, eat lead Tracy. uh, And fights the bum in the shack, which I love. The visual gag of the shack swaying back and forth is pretty good. Yeah. And I just, I, this was one of the ones that was burned into my brain. Like the kid lives with that weird bum guy and he's super scary looking. He's like a Lovecraftian fisherman who's starting to turn into a fish man. He's like an orc in uh, Lord of the Rings. And yeah, you're just sort of getting a sense of like, oh, we're in this weird city. I, I think it's supposed to be like Chicago, right? To me, it's very Chicago. That's where Gould lived. Yeah. And they wanted to shoot it on location in Chicago, but they decided not to. The whole movie kind of has this, obviously there's the aesthetic of all the primary colors, but like it feels very Midwestern. All the food that they eat is just like pumpkin pie and milk. And like, (laughs) it's all very white bread. Except for Paul Servino, he eats oysters. But the quote unquote good characters, you can just picture them going to church on Sunday and being like these fucking wasp assholes. 
uh, only eating foods that are white. That's sort of how I view this movie. It's like this weird Midwestern city fantasy. All right. This sequence is a good place to talk about two things I want to take your temperature on. Warren Beatty's performance as Dick Tracy. We already talked about the fact that he's sort of weird. Is it good weird or bad weird? It's pretty bad weird, but I also think it's admirable. Just because you know he's directing the movie and it's like kind of a passion project. I'm sort of into it, even though it's not great. I'm rooting for him, even though I don't think it's necessarily a great performance. It's not like the case of Jared Leto as the Joker, where I'm like actively <laughs> like, screw you, you suck, get I hate you, get off the screen. stage. Yeah, exactly. So my take when I was watching the movie is that he's weirdly non-existent. He's letting the other actors step in and take the spotlight. Considering how charismatic Warren Beatty can be, I'm thinking about like something like Shampoo, where he just chews up the screen, or even something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where he is really reserved the entire movie, but like you can't take your eyes off him because you're so fascinated by who this guy is. He's just kind of flat. He's white bread in this movie. And originally I was just chalking up to the character being kind of a shallow character to begin with, but I almost wonder if having been thrown into the director's chair kind of late and having such an ambitious project on his plate, he just sort of forgot to give his performance time. Or, like, wasn't able to. Yeah, he was so focused on all the other stuff that he just couldn't... Yeah, it could be. But, again, I don't think it necessarily hinders the movie. Because, as we were saying, like, Dick Tracy barely has a personality that we can make out anyway. And, like, this does seem, like, sort of in that Batman world of, like, the hero doesn't really matter. It's more about everything around the hero. The only problem is half of the movie's dramatic arc depends on his personal growth. It's true. That is it's true. not like Batman where the only thing Batman needs to do is stop the bad guy. Yeah, there is a lot of back and forth with his with his girlfriend that's a little bit tedious. And the only thing worth watching is like how weird he is. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Let's talk also about some of the effects work beyond the makeup. Because this is the sequence where we start to see a lot of the matte paintings. There's some miniature work with the train, some green screen compositing. What do you think? Do you think it, it holds up? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's all very aesthetic-based. It's not trying to sell any sort of reality. It's all fantasy, and I think it's cool. It's, it's unique-looking, and it caught my eye. I wasn't like, this is gross. I thought it was yeah. pretty slick for the time. And The map paintings in particular are, are great. Yeah, and also just, like, the general, like, explosions and Tommy guns. Like, everything yeah. looks pretty good. They use a couple different techniques in this film. And the most common one they'd use is the standard matte painting technique that you see in something like Temple of Doom, where you'd have this matte painting that you'd put right in front of the camera and it would have a little hole in it that the camera could shoot through and also film the actors acting on a small section of set that would line up with the painting. Oh, that's really cool. So it's things like when like the shack is moving back and forth, the shack is a real thing. In that case, it's a miniature and it's being shot through a painting. And that's all just practical. Like that is the shot. Right. Pretty awesome. And that stuff, I think, works pretty well. But they also use some green screen compositing or blue screen compositing with, like, the miniature train when the kid runs right in front of it. And that stuff looks bad. Yeah. I don't know if they were rushed or if another thing might have been the colors. You have to be really careful how you light a green screen set to make sure that the screen doesn't bleed and that everything shows up in focus. And they were so limited in the way that they could light and shoot these scenes that that may have lent kind of a, a jankiness to the effects that you didn't see in something like Total Recall. Right. 
totally. The other thing that the matte painting and the way they used them in shooting really determined about the movie was the static camera. Because if you've got this painting and you've got a little hole in it and you set has to line up, the camera can't move. Okay. So one thing about the movie that you'll notice is that it's almost entirely static shots. Mm. That was partly a deliberate choice to try and mimic comic panels. Okay. But it was also a function of the fact that they knew they would have these extended sets that they wouldn't be able to move the camera. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm into it. But again, childhood nostalgia. <laughs> uh, what happens next? So they go to the they go to the white bread diner and eat really bland <laughs> pumpkin pie. And at the same time, we've got the shenanigans at the club, Big Boy and Lips, which is insane. This is definitely the stu- this is definitely the parts of the movie that I was enjoying way more than the stuff with Dick Tracy and the kid. Like I'm sure. in I'm in it for the gangsters. Yeah, we're we're basically cross-cutting from like Dick Tracy's domestic life, which is boring because Dick Tracy's boring and we don't care. Yep. It has an annoying kid. And then Paul Serino playing a gangster named Lips Manless, whose mouth goes all the way across his face and is like a weird W shape. Yep. Being buried in cement by a grotesque Al Pacino and his goons. Yeah. And I, again, Lips eating the clams is another one that's burned into my brain. Just how gross he is and just disgusting. Just slipping down. Yeah. I love it. Paul Serino is doing this in Goodfellas. Same year. He's good on a him. good year. Yeah. yeah. I was curious why De Niro didn't make an appearance in this movie. I guess he was too busy. I was sort of like, once James Caan showed up, I was like, oh, man, are other people going to show up from, like, The Godfather? Like, will Duvall show yeah, up? Yeah, Robert Duvall there. I feel like Duvall could have played the Dick Van Dyke character pretty well. The sure. DA. That would have been cool. De Niro could have been... Um, he was I don't know. someone they courted heavily for Big Boy. That would have been interesting, but I like Pacino. I think this is more Pacino's alley than De Niro. I think De Niro, I'm trying to think of who he could have played. Like, if you just got all of them to be in this movie. Pesci, right. obviously, would be flat top. He would have been a good flat top. And then De Niro, I don't know. I Mumbles? Oh, that would have been good, but then you lose Hoffman. You kind of, I want all ah. of the six, the 60 stars in this movie. Yeah, but, but Hoffman's not like a gangster star. Maybe Hoffman replaces Manny Patinkin. He plays sure. the piano player, De Niro's mumbles, and Brando plays the chief of police. Now, Brando should be Paul Servino's character. But then you lose Servino. Well, Servino could be any one of the other gangsters. All right. I'm trying not to rock the boat too much here. <laughs> I just want to add more characters or more all actors. What is all of these famous actors in the movie? I'm not trying to rock the boat. No, I don't want to change the actors that are already in there. I just want to add more. Got it. Got it. Okay, so anyway, there's there's all this crazy gangster drama. Can we talk about Glenn Headley? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we she's, don't have to. She's, she's lame. boring. She's really boring. Here's the thing about, about Tess Trueheart, Dick Tracy's love interest. First of all, it was originally Sean Young. She was cast but got fired like a week into production, which is almost exactly the same thing that happened to her in Batman. She was the original actress cast as Vicki Vale, but then broke her arm about a week into production. Oh, wow. So poor Sean Young would have had a very different career if those two things hadn't happened. I also think she would have been way more interesting in the role, although maybe she's too Madonna-like. She plays a lot of those sort of femme fatale kind of characters. Mm. Second, I don't think Glenn Headley is a bad actress, but she has a very milk toast persona. 
She's got that little pinched voice. She's very mannered. She's very prim. In this movie, it helps distinguish her from Madonna, who is like playing sultry to the max. But it also makes her such a wet blanket. She's not attractive at all. Like even to me, it was like both of them were unattractive in this movie. (laughs) And it's sort of at the end of the movie, it it makes sense that Dick Tracy just wants to leave. He's like, (laughs) both of these people are not worth my time. Because you've seen this a million times. You've got, you know. Madonna and the whore. Exactly. Literally Madonna. But reversed. Reversed. Yeah. And I just think this movie does not do a good job of that dynamic at all. And I'm speaking this as a target audience, cis, white, male, (laughs) piece of shit. I'm sorry. It's just, for me, it wasn't, neither of them were attractive. And I was just kind of like, let's go back to Pacino. Come on. (laughs) Because he's real attractive in this movie. He is attractive in this movie. I just wanted to call out one role of Headley's that I think works really well and why I think it works really well. Have you seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? I have not. With uh, Steve Martin and Michael Caine. No, I haven't seen it. It's, It's pretty great. And she is fantastic in it. Because the entire movie is built around the fact that she seems like a boring, milquetoast, mousy person. Right. You have to use that. Yeah, and I feel like this movie just doesn't really. Or it does, but like, I don't know. It's just not that interesting. It it does in totally the wrong way because we need to want Tracy to wind up with her at the end for the ending to have any sense of catharsis. And we just don't care. Except it kind of makes sense at the end. Like I said before, he like doesn't give a shit. He's like, I gotta go. Sorry, lady. So maybe it makes perfect sense. It's just kind of boring to watch. Do you have anything else you want to say about Madonna? I mean, we've already kind of covered all the things I was going to talk about. Her paycheck, that she was dating Warren Beatty, that she's bad. In this yeah, movie. just that I don't think she was right for this role. I don't, I obviously Madonna was huge and obviously she's like a pop icon and she's very watchable in certain contexts, but I just don't think this major gear shift from like pop to like 30s femme fatale singer was right for her. I've, I was thinking like who could do this effectively and I was thinking obviously she was five years old at the time, but like I feel like Lady Gaga could pull this off, like being a sexy singer who's also dangerous. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm just thinking about like singers, like pop singers in this role. And I just don't think Madonna's got it in this context. I think the movie combined with her persona makes Breathless such an over-sexualized character that it removes any of the sense of genuine danger to Dick Tracy's character. I mean, his like moral character because she is so over the top. You know, there's no way he winds up with her. Yeah. You need double indemnity like Barbara Stanwyck in double indemnity. Right. Where like sometimes she's really prim and proper and other times she's really sexy. And yeah, where it's, it's a little bit more subtextual when she needs to put it on, she puts it on, but it's not at 110% the entire time. The only other thing I wanted to mention with Madonna was that, she had a whole like Dick Tracy album. Vogue was the main single. And she like had Dick Tracy in her show when she was in concert. She had dancers dressed up as Dick Tracy. So she really like took this Dick Tracy thing and ran with it. She put a lot of eggs in this transition basket that never really paid off for her. Yeah. And and then she moves on and does other stuff and she's just fine. Continues to be a bad actress in most movies she's in. Hey, Evita. What about Evita? But in terms of this, it's just sort of weird. And I find it kind of funny that like, 
I guess Lady Gaga did the exact same thing with Star is Born, though. Like, you, you're in this big movie, and all of a sudden, your whole persona kind of becomes the movie. Like, she was singing Shallows at her concerts with right. Bradley Cooper once or twice. It's just funny that that happens. Synergy. Synergy, yeah. It's amazing. All right. Anyway. Last person we should talk about yeah. when we're talking cast members. Your boy, Al. Al Pacino. Al. Big boy Caprice. Come on. Give him a break. He's Al Pacino. He's just going nuts, as always. This is what he does at this stage in his career. It's hilarious. He's playing a vile, repugnant, gangster piece of shit. The problem is he's playing him as a vile, repugnant piece of shit. Right. But that's who he is. He's terrible. He's bad. I don't want to keep making the Batman comparison, <laughs> but I rewatched it. Jack Nicholson is so fun in that movie. I want him to be on screen as much as possible because I... I laugh at everything he does. He's so entertaining. He still feels dangerous. He still makes a great villain, but yeah. he's also fun to watch. I was so upset <laughs> in the rehearsal scene where Al Pacino is clearly actually hitting Madonna and she is in pain. And I'm like, this is, this is so, so gross. Do you think like actual thirties gangsters were like really smooth talking good guys? I've, I've no, been to but it. this movie has nothing to do with actual 30s gangsters. I mean, it's based on it. We've got the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I don't know. I'm going to give him he's a like little... He's like a weird hunchback with a giant chin. He's not a real person. He's very upsetting, but he's evil. I don't know. I'm into it. And it, I think it's in there with the other insane Al Pacino performances. Scarface. I mean, obviously, it's less than those, but this is what he's doing at this point. He's fucking nuts. But the thing is, he still has a bunch of more subtle, toned-down performances in his future. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Donnie Brasco. This is the Insomnia. one where he gets to just be nuts. He have you seen Carlito's Way? I love Carlito's Way. This is this is the beginning of the end for Pacino. I feel like all the Pacino no. memes, the hua. The beginning of the end is right with Scarface. That was the real beginning of the end. But you know what? I'm riding for it. I think not every villain has to be a gentleman. Some of them are just awful. Doesn't have to be a gentleman. In this kids' adventure movie, I have to enjoy the scenes that are just about the villain. I was into it. They them. have to entertain me. Bring it on. I was into it. I'm just a hateful person, though. I want to talk about one other person at this point, because this sequence here where we're cutting back and forth between Tracy and Tess and the kid in the diner and Big Boy and Lips in the warehouse illuminates one of the big problems I have with the cinematography in the movie and the production design and the visual style. So I want to talk about Vittorio Storaro. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff. He is the cinematographer on the film. He is on the short list of greatest cinematographers of all time. Yeah. The conformist apocalypse. Now reds three of the best looking movies ever made. He did a bird with a crystal plumage, which might be the most visually arresting of all the Italian giallo films, which is a really high bar to overcome. He did the last emperor, Incredible. Yeah, beautiful stuff. And there's a lot of really impressive stuff in this movie. I already mentioned that this movie has a really distinct color palette. In order to try and simulate the way that newspaper comic strips were printed, they limit the color to, it's basically just black, white, yellow, green, purple, orange, and red. I mean, and I, I'm into it. I like that everything's like kind of a solid color. I think it's kind of cool looking. I love, the I love the paint on buildings in this movie, mm -hmm. especially that scene when he's going to get blown up in the basement and, like, you see the daytime brownstones and, like, 
the stairs are painted bright red and the the uh, railing is painted bright yellow. I'm into that kind of stuff. It looks like a theme park. Yeah. It looks like Toontown at Islands of Adventure. Right, exactly. The most incredible thing about the colors in this movie that I didn't really appreciate when I watched it, but after the fact, when I was reading about it, really blew my mind, is that they worked really hard to make sure that whenever a color appeared on the movie, it was the same shade as oh. whenever else that color appeared. So all the reds are the same red. That's cool. And that is incredibly hard to do. Yeah. Under different lighting conditions, under, uh, you know, different lenses. That stuff, those change the way a color reads on screen. Mm, totally. So that must have taken a huge amount of work between Beatty and Serraro and Serraro's team and the production designer and the costume designer. And that's really cool. And they weren't like computer color correcting it either. Yeah, it was all having on set or maybe with some film processing. Right. But mostly on set. Yeah, that is impressive. But I don't think the colors are deployed in any kind of meaningful way. It's just like different colors. Yeah, it's just a look. I don't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And that's such a huge missed opportunity. And it's so uninteresting. And it's part of what makes the movie feel garish is that it's just colors for color's sake without them having any kind of emotional resonance. And I want to break down this scene as an example of that. Okay. We keep cutting back and forth from the diner to the warehouse. And the, the booth seats are the exact same color red as the boxes in the warehouse. Okay. So it's kind of visually confusing when you cut back and forth. Because for half a second, it almost looks like people are in the same place. Yeah. That's very different from like Hunt for Red October, where they use the colors of the different subs really well yeah. to immediately locate you. True. But moreover, it misses an opportunity to explore some thematic dimension or some character dimension. What if the booth was like a pleasant color to show how domesticity was an escape from the dangerous red of the mob life? Right. Or you could even do something like have Tracy framed by red because he's still more drawn to the mob scene, which is in red, and then have Tess and the kid against a different color. Yeah. I mean, who knows if they were even thinking about this kind of stuff. It, uh, it seems like they worked. And, and, I, and that just really, it really bums me out. I feel like there is the kernel of a good idea. There is an incredible amount of talent and it is all being misdirected or misused. Well, maybe it just ties back into your idea that maybe they didn't have, since the pre-production was so all over the place and troubled, like they didn't have the time to work it out. That singular vision to really work that kind of stuff out. They already had their script. They already had their people. And it's like, okay, we got to go. Beatty, do it. Right. That's just one idea of many. Or maybe they just didn't really care about that kind of stuff. They were more in it for the theme park aspect. It is very theme parky. I wonder what Martin Scorsese would have said of this movie. I bet he was at the premiere. He probably was. <laughs> His friend Paul Servino is in yeah. it. Yeah. Come on. He needed he needed inspiration while editing Goodfellas. Yeah. God, I can't wait for Goodfellas. So then there's interrogations. They go arrest lots of people. Tracy's investigating the disappearance of Lips. Right. And he interviews a bunch of people, including Mumbles, Dustin Hoffman. Who you loved in this movie. He's fine. He's. I just loved that Dustin Hoffman was in the movie. Like, I, I think it's cool that all these big actors were willing to just do this stupid movie. It's kind of crazy, given that I feel like Dustin Hoffman is more of like a bit player now or a bit of stunt casting in a movie. He is coming off of 25 years of incredible performances. And he had won an Oscar like two years before this one. He is at like the top of his career, literally. Like this is the point where his career crests and starts to move down the other way. And he takes a role where he never says an intelligible line in the entire movie. But again, I think it's all, these are all these like 
actor gods from the 60s. And this is like their glory run. They're just like, we can do whatever we want. We're going to be in Dick Tracy and make this ridiculous movie. Like, I I do wonder how much nostalgia played into this, where Beatty's at his mansion, calls Hoffman at his mansion, and is like, you want to be in Dick Tracy? One last ride. Hey, you remember how we did that Ishtar movie and it was an abject failure? Yeah. Let's run it back. Dude, they were just having a blast. Beatty's dating Madonna. <laughs> they can do whatever they want, and this is what they do. It's it's kind of wholesome in a way. I mean, it probably won't surprise you to hear me say I thought Mumbles was a terrible character. Stupid. <laughs> because the joke is old by like the end of the first line of dialogue and this scene is so long and then there's another scene of it later in the movie. Yeah, it's and it's a little tiresome just him torturing Mumbles. It's it's not cool on Beatty's part. It's not fun on Hoffman's part. I actually remember seeing this as a kid and like not enjoying this these parts of the movie. Like I was yeah. kind of like, why are they torturing this poor bastard? Like this is horrifying. But now looking back, I'm kind of like, oh, it's Dustin Hoffman. Cool. So <laughs> uh, we get Kathy Bates as the stenographer, too. Yeah, she's only in like one scene, but she gets a line of dialogue. She gets a line and she's in misery. So good on her. She gets about as much to do as James Conn or Paul Servino. No, James Conn is, is awesome in this. He gets like two lines. But he's and so then he cool. Pulls up. He's so cool. And he's like, why? Why? I love that. That was my favorite part of the movie, I think. Did you notice this weird water cooler that's a polar bear? But the spout is situated where its penis would be, yeah. so it pees the water into your cup. I don't know. It's just, what is that? It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the design of this movie. Bad. I don't understand that it. part's bad. So blah blah blah. They arrest Big Boy, but then they have to let him out. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of shit going on in the middle of Tracy this movie. Tracy is on Big Boy. Tracy is off Big Boy. Big Boy's doing well. Big Boy's doing poorly. Yeah, I just want to quickly mention Dick Van Dyke. You already said plays the DA and Charles Durning. Uh, as the chief of police. Yeah, that's the De Niro role for sure. Oh, I like Charles Durning. <laughs> Doc Hopper from the Muppet movie. Ugh, whatever. Put a bigger star in that role. Let's talk about the James Conn scene. The Joker scene, okay. basically. Okay. Big Boy brings all the heads of the gangs together and is like, we're going to consolidate. We're going to run this like a corporation. I'm going to be chairman of the board. Yeah. We're all going to pool our resources. It's basically The profit. Wire. It, the same exact thing happens in The Wire <laughs> with Marlowe. <laughs> but yeah, James Conn. Come on. He's great. He's got the one line. Why? Why? I love it. This year is a big comeback for him. I think he was pretty pleased to have this little cameo in Compare here. Compare this to what's-his-face in um, The Dark Knight, who's like, who let in the clown? Like, <laughs> I prefer this. I like that guy. No, I like that. Enough with the clown. Enough with the clown. No, James Conn's got it right. He's just like, I'm out. No. Fuck you. (laughs) And then he blows up. And we get one of the lamest stunts I've ever seen where Tracy like awkwardly jumps to the light pole and then belly flops onto the top of the car. Yeah. Also, I I think I was reading in the cast list. I think the woman gangster is Catherine O'Hara. Oh, really? Pretty sure. Interesting. She didn't have a line though. So I don't know. That's too bad. But I saw it in the, I saw it in the credits, but yeah, I love, I love all the gangsters in it in a room together it's fun yeah that kind of scene's always pretty good should we talk about mandy patinkin at all like he sort of shows up in a few of these scenes yeah is he a bad guy he's pretty he's bad the piano player he's but he ends up killing the i guess it was a corrupt district attorney so it doesn't really matter i was kind of like i because as a kid i always remember like oh 88 keys is like a victim like they hurt his hand at the beginning and he's just the piano yeah. player but then i i forgot that he frames dick tracy 
and yeah. helps kill somebody. Fucked up. Also, his hairline is very weird in this movie. I don't understand what they're going for. Yeah. Strange. And strange performance. It's strange that the movie dedicates so much time to that character. Really weird. I think he's there because they want to feature the Stephen Sondheim songs a little bit more. Right. And so he gets that duet with Madonna. But even that scene is very off-putting because he just like like a horror movie character like turns his head to her and stares at her neck like he's about to bite her. Like he's a vampire yeah. that entire song. Anyway, there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's the bug, the poor guy in the roof. I like that he's got to stay up there to report stuff. I like the raid on the nightclub when all the stuff like, I love the around. flipping. Yeah, that's another that's always bird fun. in the brain moment. The chips to cigarettes. How do the chips stay in the thing? Are they glued? Are the cigarettes glued? <laughs> it's great questions. I don't know. Mystery. Let's talk about the montages. I didn't mind the montages. I think I'm kind of into them, but it stays here that you don't like them very much. Yeah, I thought they were bad. I don't know. <laughs> My problem with the montages is twofold. One, there are too many of them. You get one montage. There are like three. That's all you get. You, you can only have one. Otherwise, you're relying on a crutch and you should think of a better way to tell your story. Two, Stephen Sondheim wrote all the original songs for this movie, which was probably a pretty good get in 1990. The songs are, like many Stephen Sondheim songs, kind of gentle and pattering and listless and have lots of really important words that you can't really catch on the first time around, particularly when Madonna isn't really enunciating them that well. And there's like gunshots over the top of it. And it makes these montages really listless and dull. Yeah. Like compare them to the Rocky montages. What's happening on screen is way more exciting than watching Rocky run through the snow. Right. But you pair Rocky running through the snow with great music and all of a sudden it becomes an iconic montage true the movie is so in your face a lot of the time that i sort of appreciated that there was just a song playing and silent machine guns going off like i the movie's so over the top for the rest of the time that i needed the break of the montage which is kind of funny because usually the montage isn't a break usually the montage is the busiest part of the movie but in this movie the montage is like the quiet moment tracy is taken down big boys gang left and right and the music's just like la, la, yeah la, la, i kind of like that um uh, and i like seeing al pacino freaking out silently that's always fun yeah he's pretty good at that he's better when i can't actually hear him screaming i don't even really want to get into like a lot of the plot points here basically yeah all that really matters is the blank mm -hmm. who i was watching this movie with a friend the other night over zoom and she was immediately like, that's Madonna. I had the same thing. I turned to Grace like the second see the black was and I said, I'm pretty sure that's Madonna. Yeah. She was, my friend was just like, that's Madonna. No question. And I was like, I don't it's know. It's a separate maybe. character in the comics. It's like his own guy who got disfigured and is like sometimes a friend to Dick Tracy. He's like an antihero. Yeah. Anyway, all of the plotting with the blank is really boring. Even as a 30 year old, I glazed over it as I would when I was 10. I really don't care. Do you just want to skip to the shootout? Yeah, I just want to skip. Shit to happens. Tess gets kidnapped. Yeah. Tracy gets framed. And it all culminates in a showdown at Big Boys Club. Come on. That shootout is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. They're all suicidal. They just drive out and get shot immediately. But come on, Tommy guns. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Tommy guns are There's awesome. There's some good explosions. Yeah. Good Tommy gun shooting. I think it suffers a little bit from the commitment to the static camera. A little bit, for sure. But the editing picks up, and there's some good stuff here. I mean, the explosion behind Tracy 
is great. Like, that's a great shot. Yeah. And then Big Boy just has his final hurrah. So Batman-y. So Batman-y. So Batman-y. That showdown should have happened in the street. I don't understand why we have to have all this business with the secret tunnel. And then Tracy knows they're going to the bridge anyway because he hears a horn. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I like it when they crunch that water can or oil can. That's just a cool textural thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's super silly. The blank shows up, gets shot. And we get our reveal. It was Breathless Mahoney, Madonna herself, underneath the mask. And she dies. It's so tragic, her death. Tracy sort of proposes to Tess and sort of adopts the kid. That was a weird scene, the final scene. Why is he so... I, I was literally like, he hates Tess. He does not want to be with Tess. <laughs> it's like he's forced He's so committed to law and order that he knows he has to marry the good girl, even though he feels absolutely nothing for her. Yeah, it's so weird. And yeah, there's that great final shot where the kid and Tracy are going to go get the bad guys. Is it troublesome? Yes. Is it weird law and order shit? Yes. But it's a kid's movie. It's just, you know, for kids. A kid's movie where cops kill people and let me tell you something. It's perfect for a 10 year old. It's perfect because you're getting all that good content but you're not getting the blood and the cursing. There's Danny Elfman music in this movie. Yeah, do you like the score? I do. I like it way more than Nightbreed, uh, which was another Danny Elfman that we talked about. Yeah, he was having a big year. He also did Dark Man, which is great. And he's going to do Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, awesome. No, I like this one. It is, It is again, like Batman. What What is going on with Batman here? Yeah, I think that Danny... So Danny Elfman probably could have conceivably been brought on after Batman. Right. That's the one part of the movie that may be a direct response. And I think it's not a great fit for the material. I like the main Tracy theme, but it's too Batman-y. This should be like Jazz Age. Yeah, that's This should true. be a lot bluesier. Yeah. It, sh- it doesn't It doesn't want to be this very pulpy, Or like, like 20s, thing. like Prohibition-ish kind of stuff. I feel like yeah. that could work too. I want some like trumpets with yeah. uh, uh, mutes at the end going like wah, wah, wah. I don't want... Yeah. You know, Elfman's bullshit. All right. Legacy. So I mentioned right at the top, studio did not want Beatty to direct because he had a reputation of going over budget. And this film was no different. It was greenlit at 25 million. By the end of production, it cost 46.5 million. It almost doubled its budget in production. That's a lot of money. But it's still a pretty solid hit. It opens on June 14th to 22.5 opening weekend, 104 million domestic, 163 worldwide. An important number to keep in mind whenever you look at box office gross versus budget is the marketing budget is usually equal to the production budget. So the movie actually cost Disney close to $100 million, and they wind up making about $63 million on the back end. So it was a hit, but... Not worth the trouble. Disney did not see it as a big hit. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do the ranking game? Yeah. I, it seems like it made a good chunk of change. I'm going to put it at like 20 uh, I'm trying to think of a way to make this game more dynamic. I don't know. There uh, is, it's just literally a numbers game. It, it it did make a good chunk of change. So maybe you should go, go higher. higher. Okay. Uh, 10? 10's close. It was nine. Nine. Okay. It broke the Ninth top 10. Ninth highest grossing film of the year. Good job. So it broke the top 10. Plus the movie gets nominated and wins a bunch of Oscars. There you go. Why is Disney being such assholes about this movie? So it wins art direction, makeup, and original song. I am now ready to say fully Total Recall should have won makeup that year. I'd give it to Dick. If I was if I was an Academy voter, I would have voted Dick. There's a lot of makeup in Dick Tracy. I don't think any of it is as convincing as the prosthetic work in Total Recall. See, I like Flat Top a lot. I feel like Flat Top is worth it. 
I don't see Forsyth under there. Total Recall's makeup was a little samey to me. Like, it was just the Mar Martians, and that was pretty much it. The effects were cool when it, like, did cool stuff to people's faces. I like that a lot. But that's not makeup, right? Well, I mean, some some of it kind of toes the line. Is Benny's arm makeup or not? I think that would have been considered makeup. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I just like the variety here. Whereas in Total Recall, it's, it's just like, oh, they all have weird burn faces. Total Recall does have the the boobs though so that maybe it should have gotten it i don't know <laughs> uh so it's also nominated for cinematography costume design sound and best supporting actor for al pacino there you go that's what i'm talking about hoo-ha i want to talk a little bit about something that i watched again like i said i went deep on this after the fact given that it won a bunch of oscars and made a reasonable amount of money people wondered when are we going to get a dick tracy sequel there was a lot of issues with the rights, different holders claiming that they had control of the character, uh, a lawsuit that only recently got settled in Beatty's favor. In order to maintain his interest in the rights, in 2008, Warren Beatty produced a Dick Tracy TV special. 2008? 2008. What the hell? That aired on TCM, and it was him in character as Dick Tracy being interviewed by Leonard Maltin. Wow. TCM's classic movie critic. So this is like that thing where they have to keep making Spider-Man movies in order to retain the rights, basically? Yeah. This is the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie that was never supposed to be released. Like, it's it's just a ploy. They're just doing it to hold on to the rights. This thing is so weird. It was shot by future three-time Oscar winner Emmanuel Lubezki, even though it's just an interview in a black room, Charlie Rose style. Okay. The short begins with a shot down a makeup woman's blouse. Okay. And then we get all these workers on the lot who are starstruck by the idea of getting to meet the real Dick Tracy in 2008. Now, in 2008, if I told you Dick Tracy was going to come to where you work, would you give a shit? Uh, no. Then Dick Tracy enters the room. The makeup artist offers to put makeup on him. Tracy waves him away. And Leonard Malton says to the famously vain and clearly 71-year-old Warren Beatty, you don't need makeup. You look great. So this is just a parody, basically. No, it's not, because it's not funny. There's no jokes. Mm. To which Beatty responds by saying the word pomegranate like four or five times. He said, you look great. What's your secret? Pomegranates. 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 <laughs> pomegranates. Other quotes from the episode? No one ever went wrong with our friend the Blueberry, said famous fictional detective Dick Tracy. J. Edgar Hoover was a wonderful man. What are they talk about they talk about the history of dick tracy okay it's actually pretty interesting when leonard malton is talking about the history of dick tracy but does he say like so dick you were a comic originally then you were a movie the premise is dick tracy was a real person and all of the fictional media was based off his life wow this is deep there's more dick tracy misremembers and miss says stephen sondheim's name like three or four times and it's never corrected Stephen Sondheim's name is not said properly in the episode. Okay. Multiple times, Dick Tracy comments on how Warren Beatty looks like him at like different points in it. Okay. Not all at once, just five minutes later, he'll bring it up again. Uh, Dick Tracy calls Warren Beatty a knee-jerk liberal. Okay. At one point, when discussing the legacy of Sherlock Holmes, Dick Tracy leans into Leonard Moulton and with a sly grin says, ah, but he's not an American. Okay. This sounds weird. And the movie, and the short ends with Tracy being called away and Leonard Malton just has this slightly queasy, confused look on his face. Was this like a writer's strike thing? 
This is the exact same time as the writer's strike. Maybe this has, maybe that had something to do with it. It's utterly baffling. I highly recommend you watch it because it actually does tell you a lot of interesting stuff about the history of Dick Tracy and Leonard Maltin's great at his job. Okay. I'll check it out. Is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube. The whole thing. Wow. All right. I have my Friday night planned. <laughs> so jury's still out. The day may come that we get a Dick Tracy sequel. Doubt it. I would be surprised. He doesn't have any superpowers. Let's wrap this up. 90s themes? Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of obvious ones. We've got crime infecting society. Yeah, our favorite. We've got special effects disciplines being like sort of the last hurrah for practical effects. Yep. We talked about comic book adaptations and comic adaptations with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Madonna, just as a thing. Madonna <laughs> as a theme. Pop stars. Well, Madonna's has to reinvent herself because it's no longer the 80s. We're in the 90s now. And then she's going to go do Kabbalah. It's fucking nuts. Was she bigger in the 80s than the 90s? I oh, yeah. I feel like she was bigger in the no, 90s. No. Early 90s? No. Like a virgin. Madonna was That's huge in the, in the 80s. She was like MTV. Yeah. yeah, okay. Okay. What I want to talk about is the ways that this sort of doesn't match some of the other things that we talked about. Particularly, this movie feels really out of touch with like the predominant politics that we've seen showing up in other movies, which is interesting because Warren Beatty is a noted supporter of liberal causes. That's why I think that this movie was more of like a fun vanity project for all the people involved. Like they're just reenacting their favorite comic book from like the forties. It just seems so strange given a lot of what this movie's about, that it doesn't have any of the anti-authoritarianism that we'd seen in a bunch of movies or any of that kind of like post Reagan melees. Dick Tracy is falsely imprisoned. And yet he never loses his faith in the legal system. It's also like a 10-year-old script, right? That's true. So maybe it was a little dated already. It must have been written way earlier than the actual production. I don't know how much they changed it, but... It went through a whole bunch of drafts. People hated a lot of versions of the script. That's the thing that when you read about the production history, it's just a bunch of people coming on and saying, oh, the script was terrible. So that could also be a thing that like it doesn't really have a point of view because... So many people have their had their hands on it. You do see that a lot when you have a bunch of credited writers. The movie tends to be lowest common denominator. Right. So, yeah. Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the other thing about the TV special. There's like a weird 60s surfer dude Dick Tracy song that plays over the like a lot of the show. It just seems like such an outdated random mishmash. This Orphan Annie I don't know what was going on back then. Do you know um, J.D. Tartakovsky? No. The Samurai Jack guy, he did the Hotel Transylvania movies. Oh, okay. I don't know him, no. His passion project for many years has been to make a Popeye film. Oh. And the reason he keeps making Hotel Transylvania movies, supposedly, is they keep telling him, okay, if you do one more, we'll let you make your Popeye movie. Okay, if you do one more, we'll let you make your Popeye movie. And supposedly it's happening. I feel like Popeye at least has a character that I can understand. Like he is a character. He eats spinach and gets strong. Well, and you can imitate him. Like it's not like Dick Tracy where he just has no characteristics almost. Dick Tracy, anyone could be Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy is a trench coat, a hat and a wristwatch. Yeah, whereas Popeye a has person. a voice. He's got a body type. He's got a whole thing going on. So maybe that would be successful. Dick Tracy, I don't think so. We'll see. We'll see. All right, let's plug up our... Our people. Yeah, at BTTM Pod on social media, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks to Andy Gagnon for our music. Woo! And yeah, next week we're doing something a little different. <laughs> Closer to our triple crime feature. Yeah, it's crazy. We are looking at 
a summer of sequels, a sequel spectacular. Oh my God. Five, five movies. Five movies. Jeez Louise. It's going to be that nuts. tore up the box office Ugh. in 1990. Are they good? Are any of them good? Probably not. We will see. Find out next week. We got to end it like a serial. <laughs> Will Nat and Ben survive their attempt to talk about five movies? <laughs> Will the United States collapse? <laughs> Find out Jesus next week. Christ. For Back to the Movies, this is Nat. And this is Ben. We'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. <laughs>